Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this week we'll be talking about the economic impact of COVID-19 on women and what can be done about it. We'll be joined by Lynn Barr-Telford, the Assistant Chief Statistician of the Social Health and Labour Statistics Field at Statistics Canada, and then by Anjum Sultana, National Director of Public Policy and Strategic Communications at YWCA Canada. But first, I'm joined by Katie Davey, executive producer of Policy Speaking. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Happy International Women's Day. Well, I was actually wanting to say that first, so I'm glad that you squeezed it in. And, and that is, you know, the purpose of this episode, to talk particularly about COVID and women. And I think some of the issues that have been highlighted for people during the pandemic that we're getting more and more attention to, aren't we? Even in the stimulus package in the states. We're seeing some new initiatives coming out there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, although none of the issues necessarily highlighted and augmented by COVID-19 are brand new, we're definitely seeing uh, more of a policy impetus towards addressing them. Yeah, of course, the Biden stimulus package was approved just was it late in the day on Friday or sometime sometime over the last few days and it was, you know, I think a really good thing to see that that package included support for um, for parents with children, very similar to the Canada Child Benefit style uh, approach that we have here in Canada. It's not permanent, though, so uh, I guess we'll see how long that continues, but it, it at least is a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah, the National Child Benefit or the beginnings of some form of equivalent in the United States is a very interesting development. You know, when I see over the years, Democrats, particularly from the Northeast and more particularly from New England or, or, or New York, you see a kind of wannabe Canadianism. You see, you know, that, you know, would like to have universal health care in the way that we have universal health care. Of course, you know, we also would like to have, you know, their capacity to technologically innovate and to manufacture vaccines. So would be things that we may want to have. But the child benefit has been, you know, a great Canadian policy that has gone through several administrations, if you will, in Canada, you know, in some ways, starting with Prime Minister Olvroni, taken much, much further down the road during the Kretschmer years as well. And the province is joining with the federal government on a benefit and then, you know, recreated and added to in the Harper years and then in, in the Trudeau years. So this may be one of those Canadian policy gifts to America. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there's never really been, I mean, at least in the last few decades, there's never really been a question that, you know, direct support from the government would go to families. Uh, There has been, of course, an ongoing policy conversation about 
how that would happen and the level of support and the mechanism and all of those pieces. But the fundamental policy principle has really not been debated. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's a really positive step for the United States to start moving forward. Um, it's it's a huge. I mean, Canada proves that it's a huge poverty alleviation uh, strategy. So yeah, I think on on this week, International Women's Day, it's definitely also important to note how much that will help and impact uh, women. Yeah, and I guess what has been debated and back and forth over the years is how targeted or how general to be. When I was a kid we received a family allowance check, which was part of Mackenzie King's. I was not a kid when Mackenzie King was prime minister. I should actually make that very clear. I've only heard about him and, and read about his antics and his longevity. But for the 1945 allowance, he brought in old age pensions and he brought in family allowances. And I remember, you know, the family allowance check for my sister and I arriving. And that was an important part of my parents' income in ways. Totally. And it, and it remains to be the same. And I think it's interesting, you know, we can talk in detail here about the different policy mechanisms and the mechanics and the instruments. But really, for most families in Canada, they still call it the family allowance, right? All, all that really matters to them is that they're getting the support and are able to, you know, support their family using this, this type of income as well. So I think it's, it's a positive development. So later in the show, we'll, we'll talk to a statistician at StatsCan, you know, who will talk with labor market and women, and then we'll talk about, uh, about policy measures as well. But I take it, I take it this week, there's also uh, a new task force that will advise the government on women's issues. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So uh, the federal government announced today the task force on women in the economy, and it has some some really heavy hitters, a number that we've worked with here at PPF, actually. We only work with heavy hitters at PPF, and, and if it doesn't start out that way, it always ends up uh, that way. Exactly, <laughs> um, exactly. And others, of course, are noticing the same. But yeah, their role will really be to advise uh, the government leading up to the budget on uh, impacts and mechanisms and, and, you know, all the other pieces around women in the economy uh, as we lead into the recovery. And I think from the conversations that you'll have today in this episode, Ed, uh, we'll see why that's necessary. You know, I think we all wish we lived in a world where it wasn't necessary, but it, it certainly is right now. And I think it's a positive step forward. Well, it's a little late in the budget process, I imagine, but hopefully this will provide some icing on the cake. Yeah, well, you know, I think really, from my perspective, the deeper conversations will need to be operationalizing policies and budget measures that kind of come into place, not necessarily exactly what those should be. So hopefully this group of experts will be able to provide some advice on those points. Okay, well, thank you, Katie. And let's get to our guests. Before we move on to our interview, I'd like to thank the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Center for partnering with us to bring you policy speaking in February and March. Both the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Center are valued partners of PPF and their work contributes greatly to the conversation around innovation, skills, diversity and inclusion in Canada. And we are pleased for their recognition of the work of the team at Policy Speaking and the Public Policy Forum more generally. In fact, PPF is currently in the late stages of a research project with these partners called Skills for the Post-Pandemic World. Early on in the pandemic, we concluded together that the future of work had in many respects become 
the present of work. So we all need, therefore, to accelerate the solutions to challenges that are closer at hand than had originally appeared. And so papers in this series will be released in March and April. Please keep an eye out for it. As I stated at the outset, we are pleased to have with us today Lynn Barr Telford, the keeper of the facts in Canada on everything to do with the labor market. Lynn, welcome back to Policy Speaking. Thank you, Ed. I'm really happy to be back for another conversation. Very much appreciated. I also want to thank you and just say happy International Women's Day to everyone. Happy International Women's Day, which of course is really the theme of what we're going to talk about. And, you know, you joined us on this podcast back in May 2020. Let's start with what's changed since then? You know, what trends are catching your attention? So, Ed, it's um, I'm really glad to be back because it seems like uh, seems like a while since we spoke in some ways, but it also seems like it was just yesterday since we uh, since we talked. If you think back to when you and I had our conversation in May, uh, we had seen some pretty significant shifts in the labor market in response to the economic shutdown of COVID. At, uh, at the time, we had seen a drop of a million in employment in March, followed by another drop of 2 million employment in April. And we had also seen an increase by April of you know 2.5 million Canadians who were working less than half their usual hours. So at that time, the cumulative, if you will, effects of the uh, of the pandemic meant that about 5.5 million Canadians had been affected by the economic shutdown by either not being employed or not working uh, their usual hours, so having substantially reduced hours. And if you think back, Ed, we talked a little bit back then as well about starting to see um, some of those glimpses of the unequal impacts that the pandemic was already starting to have. So when we think on this occasion of uh, International Women's Day, back in March, women really saw a significant impact of the COVID-19 shutdown, primarily because of the industries that were hit so hard, but also shortly thereafter in April, we also saw uh, that impact of COVID-19 spread over to the goods producing sector, which is primarily where it started to impact men at that time as well. And, and this is where the picture became a little bit fuzzy in some ways, because you know it was initially a she session, a new word that was invented at the time to capture you know what was happening in the labor market. And then, and then it, as you say, it evolved, but then it's evolved you know, I, I'm sure you've seen several evolutions now, haven't you? We have, Ed. We've been, uh, and and it wouldn't surprise you to to see how how much the labor market has really been a reflective of a lot of the public health measures that have been put in place to keep Canadians safe. So after we we spoke, we saw an increase, a pretty sharp increase in employment throughout the spring and the summer months after we had spoke. And then we saw a slower pace of employment growth into the fall. So by November, we had about 80% of the employment losses that we had had in March and April had been recovered. But then we moved into the late fall and into the winter months where we saw the reintroduction of public health measures, what many refer to as wave two of COVID-19 having an impact on the labor market. And we saw with those, with the rising COVID-19 case 
numbers, some public health restrictions impacting labor market growth. So we, we did see that slowdown. And in recent months, we've seen Again, some with December and in January with our labor force survey, we have seen some employment losses. So as of uh, January 2021, our last release, and just a, a note to all your listeners that this Friday is will be our more recent release for the uh, labor force survey. So it, just for the, through that period from November to January, we saw a drop in employment of 266,000, a rise again in the unemployment rate, got up to 9.4% as of January. And it really reflected a lot of what was going on in central Canada, in Ontario, in Quebec, a lot of what was happening in part-time work and particularly in industries that are affected by uh, the COVID-19 shutdown. So think about food, accommodation, and, and those industries. Lynn, you know, I just wonder when you're saying this, because I think a lot of people were very disappointed uh, to see the January numbers and to see unemployment go back up in the way it did. And, you know, everybody's hoping for a robust recovery, both on the health front and the economy front. Uh, when you see these numbers the first time, are they emotional in a way to you? I think really pivoting a lot, Ed, to be able to look at all the multifaceted impacts of COVID. So we've seen the impacts on the labor market that you and I have just spoken about. We've seen impacts in the uh, in the health domain, right? We've seen long-term care facilities particularly impacted throughout COVID. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work trying to understand the impact on um, mortality rates and excess deaths. If you look into the education sphere, we've seen school closures and the impact and so forth. So when I look at the impact on the labor market, it's also in the context of a whole lot of other uh, impacts that are happening out there um, due to COVID. So there's a lot of lenses to look through, Ed, and a lot of different facets of Canadian life that have really been impacted by, by the pandemic. So it's difficult not to... Uh, not to have a, a reaction when you see the extensive uh, and not only direct, of course, lots of uh, tragedy for Canadian families and friends and so forth. And a lot of what we call indirect impacts, like the labor market, like uh, school closures and so forth. So let's go back to the question of the gender bias of all of this, of inequity on gender lines. Has the second wave, so in May, you know, we talked about differential impacts on women. Have we seen that same pattern in the second wave? It's, um, Ed, one of the most important things to recognize about the impact of COVID, and, and as we've seen those trends really reflect a lot of the public health measures, is that the gendered nature of work across sectors we're picking up a lot of impacts of that gendered nature of work. So women, for example, they're more likely to work in retail, they're more likely to work in accommodation and food industries. And these industries have been particularly susceptible to the, the economic uh, closures that have been taking place during the pandemic. We've also seen an impact on part-time work. And we know that women are about twice as likely to work in to work part-time than men. So this, uh, this has really shown up in some of those impacts of the, uh, the public health measures uh, on, on women. It's um, in another respect as well. And, you know, we are celebrating this week as and Monday, March 8th, the International Women's Day. I think it's really important as well to recognize the contribution that women are making on the front lines of the pandemic. 
You know, women are about 90% of registered nurses. They make up about 50% of physicians. When you look at nurses' aides and orderlies and patient service providers and think about the impacts of working in the long-term care sector, women make up about 87% of these occupational groups. And also think about education. When we have school closures and so forth, women make up a large percentage of educators in the elementary secondary school system. So I'm, you know, when I think about the contribution of women on the front lines, I'm inspired by those who have put their own safety, that of the, the families, you know, at, at risk in some circumstances, and those educators who've really put our well-being of our children front and center. Well, I mean, it's very inspiring. And, and it's also, I guess, a little bit troubling because you have women, you know, so fundamental to the front lines and to the response to this. And yet you have them being disproportionately harmed because of the nature of the industries uh, that they're in. So particularly, I guess, uh, those groups of women who've been, who are overrepresented in industries that have been uh, harmed from the beginning of this, what, what are the trends look in long-term unemployment? And what are the dangers, you know, the extra special dangers that exist in long-term unemployment? Yeah, and so the, the key to this one, Ed, is, is we've been tracking a number of the different measures and um, movements in and out of employment and labor market participation and so forth are really, really important to keep track of. But we also have to be mindful as we look ahead to have those kind of measures so we can see whether or not there's a scarring impact going forward. And it's in, in some ways a little bit early to tell whether or not we're going to, what the nature of those long-term impacts might be, how temporary some of this uh, might be given the industry sectors and so forth. So we really do need to most definitely keep our, our eyes on, on those kinds of measures. We've seen, for example, with a particular trend among young women. So we talk about uh, women and the impact on women, but it's really key that we remember that women are not a homogeneous group. So uh, there's a lot of diversity within women and we've seen some particular impacts on young women. In fact, of all the major demographic groups, employment levels for young women are the furthest away from pre-COVID. They're over 17% still off where they were at pre-COVID. How would that 17% just compare generally uh, with an average? Well, if, um, if you look at, it's certainly much, uh, much higher than for, uh, for other demographic groups, for example. So overall in the trends we had about, we were about 5% for women overall. So 5.3% for women overall as a group. So, so, so you're talking about three times as hard for young women. We're talking about a, a significant impact on young women, for sure. And, you know, Ed, when you think about the impacts over the long term, we're going to have to keep our keep a very watchful eye on the impacts for our, our youth generally, but in particular for our young women as, as we go forward. Okay, well, as you say, Lynn, you know, there's diversity among women, a great deal of diversity uh, among women, and perhaps you can give us some insight around racialized women, and, and perhaps you bring it together as well in terms of younger racialized women. I mean, do, do we keep getting into categories that present more and more challenges? I'm, I'm really glad you said that, Ed, because I, I kind of refer to it as diversity within diversity. 
So you can compare women to, you know, men, for example, but you can, and young women to young men and to women overall. But if you look at women, uh, black women, as an example, racialized women, we've seen that uh, in January 2021, the unemployment rate for black women was 13.4%. And that compares to 8.3% among women who were not members of a visible minority nor indigenous women. So if you think about the impacts overall, it really is fundamental to take a diversity lens. We also can look at uh, low wage workers. And Ed, I think when I was with you in May, we talked a little bit, right? About the unequal impact of, of the pandemic at that time and how it was uh, impacting low wage workers and, uh, you know, we were talking about what those impacts might look like down the road. And so among women, low wage workers have certainly seen a, an impact. So when I'm talking about that low wage workers, employment, if you compare low wage women, uh, their employment was 31% lower than back in February 2020 at the outset. And that compares to about 21% when we compare it to low wage males. So there's diversity within diversity and the impacts are really important that we, we take a look at those intersections. Now, of course, one of the things that still happens in society, although we're in 2021, is that childcare falls uh, disproportionately on women still. And what, what is your research showing you is happening there? And, ha and how much does that track the opening and closing of schools and daycares? Thanks for the question. You know, Ed, there is no question that the pandemic has exposed the, the vulnerabilities and the ability of women to uh, participate in the labor market and the economy. And it is in many ways tied to the role that women play in uh, undertaking parental tasks. We've seen that many women with children have had to either cut back on their employment or cut back on the number of hours that that they're working. And we saw that in January as well. So we talked a little bit about some of those trends, right? Um, that we saw growth in the spring and summer, and then some more recent trends. So if you think just in January of this year, where we saw this, some of those school closures again, employed parents who talked about losing more than half of their hours of work um, due to COVID, we saw a notable increase among mothers whose youngest child was in those school, those school age range of six to 12. So we saw a 1.7% drop in the employment in this group. And we saw it go up more than for males who were uh, parents of young children, but there was still an impact of, of those school closures. And um, it certainly wasn't as high as we saw back in April when we uh, saw the, the peak, but it continued to have an impact. Now, so you can look at the labor market, Ed, but we've also had some other different ways and some different tools that we've used to talk about the impacts. And the school closures and the extra uh, childcare responsibilities that come from school closures has not been gender neutral. So we've seen women, for example, report much higher rates of taking the primary responsibility for homeschooling and for doing homework with their children compared to the fathers in the situations or the males in, in the same situations. I know, Lynn, that I shouldn't ask the statistician for a rough estimate or a rough number, but what is the differential look like roughly? 
So when we specifically ask that, that question, most women, so 64, I can give you those numbers, Ed, the majority of women, 64% reported that they mostly perform the homeschooling or helping children with homework. And it compared to 19% of men. So there's, there's a significant gap there. Still a very significant gap. Let me, let me just ask you one other area because, you know, we had a guest a couple of weeks ago, we had a couple of guests and one of the guests is a woman named Nadine Spencer, who's the chair of the Black Professional Business Association. And, and I, I know that you've done uh, some work on women-owned businesses and, and, you know, what are you seeing there? Do we see, do we see different effects happening there as well? You're right, Ed, we have done some work on businesses and looking at how businesses are, are faring, as well as the ownership of businesses for, for women, as well as uh, visible minority populations. And we know that business ownership has long been seen as you know, an important driver of innovation, important driver of productivity growth, an important driver of job creation, and so forth. Um, so when we looked at the impact of the pandemic on businesses that were majority owned Owned by women, it had it didn't have a significantly different impact for women-owned businesses and for men overall. But we did see a few differences in uh, in the impact of, of the, the pandemic. Women-owned businesses, for example, majority-owned businesses, were more likely to lay off a larger proportion of their workforce. They were more likely to rehire fifty percent or more of their laid off employees, and they had more of their workforce working remotely. But in terms of the overall impact of the pandemic, it, it had a similar impact on um, majority owned businesses as, as it did for all Canadian businesses. And are you able to look at that at all through a diversity lens? We are. We did look specifically as well at businesses that were majority owned by um, members of visible minority populations. And what we saw, we did see some of that unequalness that I was talking about a little bit, uh, bit earlier on. So businesses owned by visible minorities were more likely to see lower revenues compared to August 2019 when we did the comparison. So almost a quarter of businesses that were majority owned by visible minorities reported a decrease of revenue of 40% or more compared to about just over one-fifth of all businesses in Canada. We also saw businesses that were majority owned by visible minorities reporting being less likely to have the ability to take on more debt and also less likely to have the sufficient liquid assets to, uh, to be able to, to operate. What's sad about this is you, you don't expect everything to fall evenly, impacts to fall evenly, but that they fall on on a slope of disadvantage, I think should really upset people. So Ed, I think what's, it's really important for us all to remember that many of these inequities, they, they pre-existed COVID, but COVID has clearly exposed them. It has shone a bright light on existing inequities, on marginalization and vulnerability. And it has the risk of further deepening some of these already existing inequities that we saw. So this is, uh, this is a real important thing is that uh, COVID didn't cause these inequities, uh, but it certainly exposed the vulnerabilities that many marginalized populations in this country certainly face. 
I think that underlines, you know, the need for policy responses, uh, some of which are, uh, are under discussion, obviously. And I said at the beginning that you're the um, keeper of the facts in Canada, everything to do with the labor market. But I, I think that might have been an unfair understatement. Uh, I think you're, you know, the keeper of an incredible amount of insight that uh, helps inform policymaking and hopefully will help uh, inform policymaking in the kinds of situations that you're uh, exposing yourself. So thank you so much for being with us again, Lynn, and sharing those insights. Thank you, Ed. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Antrim. Great to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest, so excited for the conversation ahead. Oh, well, I'm already completely indebted to you, not just for being here, but for being the long-term listener. So thank you. Thank you. You know, earlier we spoke with Lynn Barr-Telford of uh, Statistics Canada, and she gave us, you know, some feedback on how the pandemic has been impacting women. And you know, one thing she said generally about the pandemic and its economic uh, effects is that um, it's unprecedented, it's uneven, and it's unequal. Those were her things, unprecedented, uneven, unequal. So why don't you give us a little bit of sense of how this has been looking to you through the work you've been doing? Yeah, I think, you know, when the pandemic was called uh, a global pandemic by the World Health Organization on March 11th, our YWCAs across the country went into overdrive. They started to figure out how could they support their communities in need. And you may have been hearing about this during this pandemic around how uh, gender-based violence has been on the rise. Uh, we've also seen housing and housing insecurity really come to the forefront. And also the incredibly devastating economic losses. And for a lot of the people we serve on the ground in communities across the country, they're dealing with all of those things at the same time. So absolutely unprecedented, uneven, and unequal. And the challenge has been is that previous playbooks had never seen something like this. So we can't use traditional measures to address this current crisis. And so we've been doing a lot of work around what is that new playbook? How do we actually approach this new type of crisis? And that's uh, some of the work that we've been doing on a feminist economic recovery plan for Canada. Well, uh, well let, let's talk about a feminist uh, economic recovery plan for Canada, because, you know, obviously very early uh, in the pandemic, it became you know, quite clear that the impacts were you know, felt very heavily, uh, particularly, I think, and Lynn spoke about this as well, particularly at the beginning when services industries were the first hit. And then in the second wave, you know, once again, that pattern. And also, of course, around the issue of childcare, And she had that very interesting statistic, perhaps very disturbing statistic, that in, in couples asked who has the main child rearing responsibility, 64% uh, were women and 19% were men. And I guess the other kids, they're parked in front of the television or something. I don't know where the rest uh, go. So what are you recommending? What's the tenor of what we do about this, uh, both in a feminist economic recovery plan for Canada and, and subsequent to its publication? Yeah, so when we published this back in July of last year, it was, you know, just the early onset of the pandemic. And so we were starting to see trends and we were seeing that there needed to be key, key actions taken to address the crisis as it was happening, but also with the view towards the future, because uh, we have YWCAs in Halifax, in Yellowknife, in Vancouver, in Prince Albert, and we were hearing some of the same things. 
childcare, we need more childcare because a lot of the economy rests on this critical form of labor. And when childcare is grinded to a halt, so does the economy. So that's something we saw even before the pandemic, but the real need for it actually accelerated post-pandemic. We were also seeing things that quite disturbed us around which sectors were most impacted. So retail, hospitality, tourism, and for us, one of the things we've been looking at is, are those sectors actually going to come back? We know right now the uneven recovery that's been happening where women are starting to come back into the labor market, but at a slower rate than men, uh, partially because their sectors keep getting shut down by lockdown measures, right? And so for us, you know, we really need to look at reskilling through a gender responsive lens in this new post-pandemic era and think about how do we get uh, women into those pathways to those jobs of the future. This was something we were starting to think about before the pandemic, but now with the pandemic on our doorstep, it's becoming more and more of a reality. And the thing is, um, in a lot of communities across the country, women, um, if they lose their job, they typically come to YWCA to figure out what to do next. And so we're trying to think about how do we ensure that they have the digital uh, skills and devices to re-enter the labor market, perhaps in new jobs. Uh, but also, how do we think about um, the care economy? So these are some of the conversations we were having um, as we were writing this uh, report back in July. We're seeing some of those same conversations are relevant today. Well, you know, when I read that report, you know, it was it was quite evident. And I've got to say it's been evident in our work at Public Policy Forum as well in our Rebuild Canada work, which was predicated on the idea, well, first of all, I'll say, you know, when I read it, a lot of the issues that you dealt with were pre-existing issues. And in our work, we sort of said that, you know, there's both been the introduction of some new issues that didn't exist before, and there's been a change of trajectory in many, many more issues. So, you know, for instance, you know, the future work may have become the present of work, or at least, you know, digitalization, its effects, you know, certainly sped up. And I see that through your report as well. So, is it more, is it mostly a sense of a greater urgency around issues that have been around a long time? Yeah, so definitely we're seeing on the ground a greater urgency and acceleration and increased uptake, but also transformation. So I think about, for example, uh, gender-based violence and how that's connected to economic security. So gender-based violence has been on the rise in many different forms. One of the places has been on the rise is online. So, you know, when we're talking to some of our community members, they're entrepreneurs who are now trying to figure out how do they transition their business online. But one of the things they're dealing with is misogyny online. So they're trying to figure out economic security in this new economy, but they're still dealing with uh, gender-based violence that has been left unchecked and now is being transformed with it now kind of following them online. So those are some of the things that we're grappling with. Because for us, one of the big pillars in our report was talking about the shadow pandemic and people were curious. And so for us, we see that, for example, in the experiences of entrepreneurs on the ground. Uh, we see that in terms of young people trying to figure out their schooling and reskilling, but also dealing with some of these other challenges as well. So I think um, for us, um, that was something that we offered that was distinct. Um, and we've actually seen transform during this time. Right. So, so the women who are showing up at YWCA's, I, I, I don't want to get my initial wrong there. That would, that would ruin the whole idea of women's, uh, International Women's Day, if I got that wrong, right? The women who are showing up across the country, as you say, uh, do you have the tools? Do we as a, as a society have the tools to deal with them? 
I think, you know, the challenges that YWCs are facing are also some of the challenges that nonprofits and charities are facing during this time that offer those essential services. They're seeing increased need, but less capacity. We've had to pivot to digital uh, training and digital counseling, let's say, uh, but that's been a harder transition for some than others. Um, and it's also around, even if we do offer that service, do people have the ability to access? Uh, one of the stories of this pandemic that I think we don't talk about enough is the impact on younger generations. So um, last week, our colleagues at RBC released a report looking at women's continued labor market participation during this crisis. And the group that is furthest from pre-COVID levels is actually young women, young women between the ages of 24 and under. And so I think about their future. Um, they may have been going to post-secondary education, but now that's been completely digitalized. Um, they may be trying to figure out how do they kind of navigate their career, but they're faced with the challenge that they don't have enough social capital and it's harder to get access to the social capital. So one of the things we've been trying to figure out is how do we actually create that space through digital forums? Um, so those are some of the things that we've been trying to do on the ground to pivot. But I will say the challenge has been really hard on charities and nonprofits to fill that need uh, with limited resources. Um, and that has been um, something we're really grappling with. And we see this as not only just something we're dealing with in the here and now, but if we don't address that in this current moment, that can follow those young women, those young people for the next 10 years. Uh, so that's, that's the, one of the big concerns we've been having um, during this pandemic. So we have a budget coming up relatively shortly. This week we had uh, the Minister of Finance set up a, uh, a panel of women to give her, I guess, uh, what would be some last minute advice for the budget. And I think, uh, you know, she's already made quite clear that uh, she wants childcare to be uh, to be a big feature. And, you know, I think she described it as a, a triple play in a sense, in, in the sense of, you know, opening up labor market participation, making that easier, creating um, uh, training and higher level of jobs for child uh, care workers. And of course, a focus on children and the quality of their early childhood development. What are you hoping to see there? And to some extent, you know, given that resources are limited, we've been treating it as they're unlimited, but at some point limits will get imposed. You know, what would the priorities be within that envelope for you? Yeah, so first of all, we're really pleased to see such an entity exist. Uh, this was actually one of our 27 recommendations in our Feminist Economic Recovery Plan. To, so to actually see it not just appear in the fall economic statement, but now that there's a task force. And uh, I will share our CEO, Maya Roy, will be on that task force, which is good to see. Um, for us, you know, we've been really thinking about the impact on young people, young women. Uh, we've been thinking about how do we actually leverage the talent in this incredible country from coast to coast to coast. So many newcomers come to Canada. That's one of the services we also offer at the YWCA resettlement services. And the challenge has been during this crisis, so many people have incredible skills, especially in the sciences and medical fields, but they feel like they're sitting on the sidelines, right? So I think we need to start to think creatively about how do we tap into our newcomer talent who are ready to work, but are still finding themselves sorted into precarious work. I think that's been a big challenge. I think also what we have to, what I'd be really curious to see is how are we measuring success? 
So right now, everyone is looking at uh, our GDP levels to see if they're rising to pre-COVID levels. We're looking at our job numbers. One of the things we've been advocating for is let's start to measure what truly matters. Is it enough that our GDP is back to pre-COVID levels or do we need to look at things like income inequality? Um, are we getting jobs back, but are they decent? Do they have access to paid sick leave? All of these workers, especially in essential occupations. These are the things that we should be striving towards. And that's, I know, um, one thing that the YWCA Federation is really keenly looking at um, for this uh, task force and the work that it will be doing. Well, I think, I think when you say, do, is it good enough to get back to pre-COVID levels? I think the answer perhaps to that is no and no. It's probably not good enough because growth was, uh, was too slow and, and headed on too slow. So I think we've got to create conditions where we can have uh, greater growth. And of course, the distribution of the fruits of economic activity were being skewed in their distribution in a way you know, that we hadn't seen in a number of generations. So I guess we have work to do on both those fronts, don't we? Absolutely. And I think the key message that we want to share is that we all have a role to play. We all have a role, whether we're labor unions, the private sector, civil society, academia, government. I think that's what's going to actually, what is necessary to really see that substantive change. And I will say during the pandemic, we've seen this in our local YWCAs across the country. Some of our YWCAs are actually supporting and uh, uh, supporting people with housing as they are uh, physically distancing while they wait for a COVID test. They're also being supported around vaccination sites. Um, and we've seen like, you know, what can happen when different parts of society come together. So for us, we'd like to see that similar kind of approach in the recovery process as well, especially as it leads to a feminist recovery or a she recovery. Well, I want to thank you for your role in the recovery. I want to thank you for, for the work that you're doing to push these agendas forward. Uh, I want to thank you for listening regularly to Policy Speaking, of course, and, uh, and particularly for being our guest today and for other involvement that the Public Policy Forum has had with you and your organization over the last while. So we appreciate that relationship, and I really appreciate your perspectives and insights that you offered up today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm really excited for the type of hope that I think is starting to generate. We often, um, as part of the YWC, we talk to other YWCs in other parts of the world. And it's been really great to highlight some of the good work that's happening in Canada. And I hope we can continue to be that leading country in the feminist recovery. So having the words is great. Having the commitment is great. Now to see that um, rubber hit the road and actually see those dollars in communities. So that's what we're looking forward to. Okay, well, that's great. Well, we'll have you back uh, to judge how well the rubber hit the road at some point down the road then. And uh, thanks for being with us a lot today, uh, Angel. Thanks so much. Now I'd like to highlight uh, one of those above and beyond the duty uh, contributions of one of our, of our PPF members who we like to salute once a week. And this week, uh, we are PPF proud of our member of the Department of Women and Gender Equality at the Government of Canada, WAGE. This week, WAGE hosted Canada's Feminist Response and Recovery Summit, which brought together politicians, experts, feminist leaders, and those with lived experience to examine how COVID-19 has and continues to impact the lives of women in Canada. The summit sought to focus on the steps that Canada can take to ensure an inclusive recovery by advancing gender equality. And to learn more, you can visit Chen Summit 
feministrecovery.ca. So as you all know, PPF is a membership-based organization. If you're not a member, well, I guess, what are you waiting for? We want to have you in our family. We want you to be a member. And we want you to go visit the membership page of our website, ppform.ca, to find out more. And with that ask of you, we will call this a wrap on this edition, this episode of Policy Speaking. Please leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. That helps us be seen by new listeners and helps us adjust to what our present listeners want to hear and how they think we should be interacting with them. Share it with a friend and we'll listen to you. We'll listen to your friend. Let us know on Twitter at ppformca. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who made this podcast happen. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn and this has been Policy Speaking.